Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Can you hear me okay? Yes, you sound great. All the way from Sydney, right? Yes, that's right. Sydney, Australia. (laughs) So you're talking to us from the future. I am. (laughs) Wow. So what's the future like? Is it exciting? Is it sunny? Is it... It's sunny. It's beautiful. It's pretty good. I think the future looks good. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie. And I'm Amy. This is Clever. Today, we're talking to Gemma O'Brien. She's an artist and designer specializing in lettering, illustration, and typography. Her work takes on a variety of forms, including calligraphic brushwork, illustrated letter forms, digital type, and large-scale hand-painted murals. As a commercial illustrator, she's worked with clients such as Adobe, Volcom, Heineken, Qantas, and the New York Times. She keeps insanely busy, splitting her time between advertising commissions, gallery shows, speaking engagements, personal projects, and she even hosts hand lettering workshops, and I really want to go to one of those. I know, I do too. Plus, she's also masterminded the Spew Bag Challenge, which you'll get to hear all about when we talk to her. She's young, talented, and has a really great energy about her. Jamie and I sort of want to be her new BFFs. She's also Australian, which means that everything she says sounds really smart and charming. You can see for yourself. Yeah, let's talk to her. So my name is Gemma O'Brien and I'm from Sydney, Australia, and I am a designer and artist specializing in typography and lettering, and I do it because I love it. (laughs) Clearly, you are not just living in Australia. Sounds like you are Australian. So why don't you tell us a a little bit more about where you grew up and what that was like? I actually grew up in Brisbane, which is in Queensland. It's about probably about an hour flight north of Sydney, a bit warmer and sunnier than Sydney and New South Wales. And yeah, I had a great childhood. When I was younger, I grew up with like chooks and a, a which are chickens, like hens, uh, vegetable garden, and it was a pretty good, yeah, it was a pretty good childhood. Did you grow up in the country, or did your parents have a lot of land? Is that why you had chickens? Yeah, my parents separated when I was six, but my dad was a builder, and he would build these beautiful houses, and he built this three-story timber house up in a place called, funnily enough, Mount Glorious. Hmm, sounds pretty awesome. 
<laughs> yeah, when we'd stay with dad, we'd go and, you know, do all the garden stuff and chooks and there was lots of space. It was probably about half an hour out of town. So it was like in a little mountain town not too far from Brisbane. Did you help your dad build? I don't remember, like, physically building anything, although I do remember, like, just making and creating things or, like, looking for four-leaf clovers in the garden and that sort of thing. <laughs> that does sound pretty <laughs> idyllic. Yeah. Was it so? Was it mostly you and your dad? Did you have siblings? Was there a stepmom? Did you go I back had, and forth? Yeah, we so we stayed with mom usually during the week, which was in the city, and then we would stay with dad like every second weekend. And I had an older sister, so she was she is two years older than me. And yeah, we were little buddies, and yeah, we it was pretty good. As far as broken homes go, you had a little bit of everything, and it sounds like you're pretty happy about it. <laughs> because I was only six when my parents separated. And I never, ever remember them fighting. And I think because they stayed friends and, you know, it was quite an amicable breakup that that probably had a positive impact on the family and just the way that you view, you know, parents' relationships. Sure. It sounds like they made a lot of good parenting choices there. <laughs> they did things the right way. In going back and forth between the city and the country, did you have a preference or did you like one location better than the other? I think as a kid you know, you get used to, you know, certain foods and things. And like, I know that me and my sister, when we were younger, like preferred staying in the city with my mom, just because, you know, dad had healthy foods. And funnily (laughs) enough, like as we got older, we both started to shift towards like closer to the types of foods and lifestyle of my dad. And yeah, it was kind of funny to look back on it that way. But um, yeah. And you mentioned building stuff with your dad or at least like playing with scraps of wood or something like that. Mm -hmm. Were there any other creative hobbies or activities that you did as a kid? Yeah, I I remember like I would make little booklets, like I would make little books and illustrate them and kind of staple them together and, you know, just generally creative. Like my mum was a, a kindergarten teacher. So she, even though she didn't draw or paint per se, she was very kind of creative and open. So there'd often be you know, different kinds of papers and things for us to kind of explore and play with. So it was definitely broadly creative without being too specific in, you know, one particular area. Well, I was just going to ask, I mean, when you're playing around with all these papers and pencils, did you start to get that twinkle in your eye knowing that this was something you were really gravitating towards? Yeah, I think that probably by the time I was in grade one, there'd be art competitions. You had to paint your pet and I remember I painted a picture of a chicken, a chicken that was one of our chooks and her name was Rosie. And I remember, I think I won first prize. So that was probably the first time, you know, I got a feeling that maybe I was good at what I was doing. But yeah, aside from that, it was just quite free and just being creative and making little things that I thought was cute. <laughs> <laughs> were you a pretty good kid? And were you a rebellious teenager or a, a valedictorian? Oh. <laughs> what, what kind of path did you follow? I, I was like, I would say I was a little bit of both. I was definitely very academic at school. I would always do my homework, but then still go to the parties on the weekend. So I think I was probably a little in between. My mum would probably say that in my teenage years, I was a bit rebellious and difficult, especially with her. Mother-daughter relationships are are known to be sometimes problematic. (laughs) All I wanted to do was like move out of home. I wanted to get a car. I think I wanted to work in a bar. Just because it was like the one thing that I wasn't allowed to do because I was too young and there was that side of it. But then, you know, at school I was the sports captain and I got really good grades. So, you know, I think there was a little bit of 
It sounds like so far you grew up living in the country and the city, being both an overachiever and a rebellious youth. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like you know how to do a lot of things, Gemma. (laughs) Well, I'm a Gemini. I think maybe does that mean something? I'm I'm a twin. (laughs) It might actually. That might explain some things. So when you started going down a creative path, were your parents fairly encouraging about that or were they a little apprehensive? You know, even though I did art all through primary school and high school, by the time I started to think about what I was going to study at university when I was in university, I'm oh, sorry, in school, I felt not pre- definitely no pressure from my family, but I think from my school because I got good grades to do like a smart career. And so I ended up applying for law school and I, after I finished school, did a year of law school and you pretty quickly realized that it wasn't going to be for me, you know, in terms of like (laughs) my life being a lawyer, um, you know, I was doing, staying up every night to do six hours reading. And that was just like the bare minimum. I wasn't even going above and beyond. And I thought, I don't know if this is what I want to do. Like, I didn't really understand why I'd chosen it after reflecting on it. And so then I dropped out of law school and enrolled in a design degree. And that was like the best thing I ever did. And my parents were always supportive. Like they kind of, you know, they just went along with what I did. And yeah, so that was, I think, probably a really positive thing as well. And where did you go for your design degree? So at this point I was still in Brisbane. And so I did law there and I switched to design at the Queensland College of Art. And then after a year, moved to Sydney with my boyfriend at the time and switched to uh, a Sydney art school. So that four years in design school was pretty like exciting for me, having just switched from something I knew I didn't want to do. And then suddenly being able to be creative and draw and realize that this could be a job was, yeah, it was a pretty fun time. Some of the other people that we've talked to have told us that they didn't even know that design was a career choice or a career option for them. Was that something that was pretty easy for you to discover that existed out there? Or or did you have to really do a lot more research to find out what kind of art or creative path you really wanted to go down? I know nowadays there's, you know, different kinds of studies where it incorporates design or digital media within the the school education. But for me, the only real creative thing at school was art. And I remember thinking, well, I don't want to study art because artists don't make any money. So I should do something that's like kind of in between, you know, which is such a typical thing for people to say when they um, sometimes choose design. And the other thing that I just remember people saying was that they studied design because they wanted to be able to design record covers for their favorite band. Yeah. It wasn't even that I wanted to do that. It was just that I remembered those things and thought, well, this is probably a good in-between. But in terms of, you know, specializing in typography and lettering, like that wasn't even a concept to me until my second year in design school. And, you know, the idea of working purely with letter forms and focusing within typography was something that I just would never have imagined. <laughs> that must have been an exciting discovery for you. Yeah. When you find something that you just feel so energized by and so interested in investigating. That was probably a big turning point for me because, you know, I had loved illustration within design and, you know, had been trying lots of different areas. And then I had an opportunity to set type by hand in the letterpress studio, which was a small one, which was set up at the design school in Sydney. And that was like the point where I was like, wow, you know, suddenly these letters and the fonts were in a physical drawer and you could touch it and you could feel it. 
And it was just like a whole new way to understand the rules of typography that was really exciting to me. So once you were done with school, what did you do? Uh, Sorry, do you mean school as in university? Yeah. Once you graduated, did you go out on your own immediately? Did you work for a design company or a creative company of any sort? Well, what actually happened was that uh, while I was still in school, I started a blog called The Love of Type. And this was like really a place for me to channel, you know, my passion. Like it was not, wasn't supposed to be a portfolio website. It was really just, you know, hey, here's some cool typography I saw on the street or here's some sign painting. And I just kind of put it all up there. And so this blog started to get noticed by a few people reading and other than my mum. Um, there, <laughs> there was this one project that I did for my second year graphics assignment in school where I uh, had to do an anti-graffiti campaign and I wrote all over my body in a Sharpie in hand lettering. And this kind of was at the time of like videos going viral on YouTube and Blogger was like the biggest platform. It was in 2008 or 2009. Mm -hmm. And so this video and my blog for the love of type ended up getting spotted by the marketing manager of Font Shop in Berlin. And he wrote this blog Mm -hmm. called Font Blog. And it was read by a lot of people in, um, in the European design community. So he basically wrote this post about my blog about this, you know, 21 year old in Australia who, well, for me, who had done no commercial work, who, you know, I was really just putting up stuff to experiment and kind of explore my own passion for typography. Anyway, so he wrote this blog post and it was called Amateur Designer and Have Sex mit Buchstaben, which means Amateur <laughs> Designer has sex with letters. Oh, and that's it was like really critical and saying, you know, and I was using the pseudonym Mrs. Eves. Uh-huh. So, you know, didn't know like if I was a student or a, you know, a designer or whether I was working, whether I was from, I don't think it was even apparent that I was from Australia. Um, and it was basically really critical. It's like everything's derivative of Stefan Sagmeister. And so just slammed my blog. And I was like, Oh my God, this is crazy. Like, you know, I'm not even a designer and I'm getting like this critique. And so what ended up happening was all these people wrote in the comment section, like, you know, maybe it's something interesting, um, you know, who cares if she's a student, if she's a designer, maybe, you know, there could be something in this and basically disagreeing with him. And so three months later, I get a message on Facebook from Jürgen Zieber, the font shop guy. And he was like, Hey, I wrote this post. And since writing it, I've had a lot of people kind of disagree with me. And so I was interested in kind of hearing a bit more about your story. And would you like to come and speak at Typo Berlin in Germany? So I was basically invited to this big design conference and he asked me if I would speak about Australian typography and the scene over here. And so I was 21, hadn't finished my degree. At, oh my I hadn't gosh. finished school. You got discovered, panned, and then the actual critic had to change his tune and invite you to his conference. That's pretty amazing. Exactly. That's exactly. the power of the internet right there. <laughs> So I guess that that was like a big point for me in terms of my career before I'd even really done anything and before I'd finished school. So I went over and did that conference and then I came back and finished my design degree. And I think after having been put on that like big world stage and I think that I did okay. And I spoke to different designers in Australia about what they thought about Australian typography. So it kind of deflected away from just me only speaking you know, usually at a conference, you'd see a designer speaking about their work. So I think that after I came back from that, I really wanted to actually just, you know, spend the time that you would get in school to be able to explore and develop your style and focus on a particular area. And so I did that. And then I ended up actually working after I finished school 
in to post-production type um, visual effects companies just because I thought, well, I, wanna, I don't want to focus too much on typography. I want to make sure I've explored all my options. But mm-hmm. then, of course, after about a year, I ended up, you know, feeling like actually typography is really the place for me. And I went freelance probably about three years after working for different, um, you know, different design studios in between. Are you still writing the blog? I'm not. I think it probably changed and my interest in it shifted at the same time the technology shifted. So at the time that, you know, blogging was a big thing in two, between 2007 and 2010. And then I started using Instagram probably four years ago and that almost replaced the blogging for me. And I think that the more I started to do commercial work and jobs, it was a bit more time effective as well. And I'm such a visual person that Instagram kind of helped with that shift of being able to like share an image or share a process image or share inspiration that was on the go and not have to kind of write a big description of what it meant to go along with it. So I kind of shifted away from the love type blog and focused on my Instagram. So you went freelance after working for about three years, you said, in various post-production houses. Yeah. So was was that scary to make that leap to go out on your own? Do you have stories of getting your first big clients? What happened? Well, so basically, you know, the tale, which is also a common one I hear a lot, is that I was working full-time and then, you know, at nighttime I would do little freelance jobs. So I was doing small things along the way mm-hmm. while I was working for these other companies, but definitely not enough that I would think, okay, this is time for me to go out on my own. And I think that the lucky thing for me was that I was working at a company called Fuel the Effects. They do Iron Man, very kind of like techie visual stuff. And they actually went bankrupt. And I'd only been there at the time just under a year. So for me, it, you know, it was quite sad for a lot of people who'd been working for the company for 10 years But for me, it was probably the thing that pushed me to like, okay, this has happened. Now I could either look for another job where I'm not 100% satisfied or try it on my own. And I remember thinking that I was, you know, obviously quite scared to be able to maintain enough of an income and creativity to keep on moving forward. But luckily, I also got approached by the Jackie Winter Group, which is my agent in Australia at the moment. And they said that a job had come along for me, a big job in Sydney that they'd be interested in doing and like trialing me as representing me as one of their artists. So those two things kind of coincided. And luckily for me, just, you know, that meant I hit the ground running with my kind of freelance career and had the support of an agency to do that production side budgets and all those kinds of things, which I think probably are really difficult when you start out as a freelancer. Oh, wow. What was that first big job? It was for, uh, so Woolworths, which is, I'm just trying to think of an equivalent in America. Like what's, a, what's one of the biggest food, like supermarket chains in oh. America? Not Whole Foods, but something, something big, you know, a big, like you know, like Target, kind, that kind okay. of scale okay. of supermarket. So it was like a Christmas campaign for them. And at the time, really intricate and flourished illustrator of typography hadn't been overdone yet. So they kind of, for their Christmas campaign, wanted this kind of intricate flourished where every fresh, fresh Christmas begins. So it was quite like one single campaign slogan, but then it was used, you know, across all the stores in Australia and anything from billboards to bus shelters to, you know, the people's aprons in the deli and that sort of thing. So it was quite a big job in terms of, you know, everyone knew the brand and everyone in Australia saw it. So it was quite a good one to, to get things going. Wow. From being discovered by the German font shop guy to this big campaign, your life seems punctuated by big breaks. (laughs) That's pretty exciting. I guess it does. Yeah. I'm sure people can hear by your voice. You're on the younger side of things. You know, you're not in your 60s. Nope. 
<laughs> so is there a work to date that you would describe as your most important work? I kind of split my time between very commercial advertising type work and then more self-directed personal projects and I guess somewhere in between art and design type installations. So for me personally, I think that the most important work is probably um, an exhibition that I had just earlier this year in Laguna Beach in California, which was an installation style space where I basically painted all of the walls and the phrases were taken from, um, you know, like our daily interactions with media. So there was remember me, which was, you know, the little password form where you just asked for it to remember your details. Mm. But I like the idea that something like remember me could be something so throwaway that you see every day in your digital interactions. But then at the same time, be so big, like conceptually, like about being human, about why we're here and the things that you might think about. So there was remember me, there was prove you're human, which came from the like little capture test that you do yeah. to prove that you're not a robot. There was like six iterations of okay, 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 you know, the way that we press this every day, but then they were like big, beautifully, intricately painted onto the wall. And then there was wrapping around kind of these center panels in the gallery space. It said re-establishing lost connection. And this was something that used to pop up on my Facebook uh, when the Wi-Fi dropped out. Mm -hmm. And I just always would see it. And, you know, at the time, maybe was thinking about a distant friend that I'd lost touch with. And, you know, it just all these kind of merging of human relationships and digital media and what that means for us today. And so to kind of bring that to life through hand-painted typography and create this experience where people had to walk through these oversized letters for me, that was probably the the place I want to head, like in my personal work where it's, you know, well-crafted design, but an experiential thing for the people who get to see it. And then some kind of concept behind driving what it means as well. So that for me is probably the most pivotal piece of work to date for me. You said you split your time between the more commercial work and your art endeavors. Do you get to spend that time pretty evenly split? Do you have to self-finance most of the art endeavors? When I think about doing commercial work, I guess there's some projects that are a lot freer and more fun and others that you just do to pay the rent. You know, it's part of, you know, any creative process, I think. And so it's not very clearly split where I do a certain number of days a week. But, you know, if I've done a big block of time where I've been working on ad ad jobs, I might then go, okay, I'm going to work on this and just be unavailable for a month or two. So it kind of just flows depending on what, what's coming up or if I'm traveling to a different city. And yeah, it's pretty flexible. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly and they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. 
I think this is for fun. Maybe it's a job, but there's there's a barf bag competition, and you've oh. designed several what they call spew bags. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yes, there's a story behind this. Indeed, it's called the spew bag challenge. On is a hashtag on Instagram. If you want to look at home? Um, but basically, it just really started. It probably was about three or four years ago, and I was flying to Wellington, so in New Zealand, from Sydney to New Zealand. And I was just sitting on the plane and I was bored and I saw the bath bag that was in the seat. And I don't know what the, I mean, I know that different airlines have often have advertising, but these ones on Qantas have basically just a blank, you know, piece of white. So there's all this space. And so I decided that I would draw fully sick. So because it was New Zealand, that's something they say in New Zealand, fully sick. And because it was a spear bag. And so I just got a little, one of the little pencils that the flight attendants give out to the kids and I wrote fully sick and I posted it on Facebook or something. It was just kind of fun and silly and lots of people were laughing and liking it. And then like my dad even called me, he's like, Gemma, are you feeling okay? You put something on the internet. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> oh, it's a joke. Oh, dads. Oh, yeah, pretty cute. But yeah, so then from that point forward, every time I flew, which at the time was starting to be quite frequently because I was doing workshops and so doing lots of little flights in and amongst Australia and overseas. So I decided that every time I would fly, I would think of another puke pun and write it on the sick bag in the duration of the flight. And so I started to do a few more. There was like queasy lover, buff punk, my name is Hurl. I would start to think of any different ways that you could do a puke pun and draw it on the flight. And then I would take a picture, put it on Instagram, and I would leave the sick bag in the seat in front of me so that someone might find it. And so after about, I don't know, maybe six or seven bags, it started to have this huge following on my Instagram. And then I decided to, like, invite other people to also draw on bath bags in their flights. So I said, look, the rules are that you think of this puke pun you draw it on your flight. So if you've got like a long haul flight, it can be more intricate and detailed. And then you have to leave the bag in the seat and you take a picture of it and put the hashtag spew bag challenge. And so it just kind of took off, had a life of its own. Like people all around the world were drawing like pop culture references of being sick or on this puke bags. Yeah. And it just, I think there's probably over a thousand entries on the hashtag on Instagram. Oh my gosh. I decided that I should start keeping them instead of leaving them in the seats because they were kind of, getting such a good following. I thought maybe I'll have an exhibition. So I decided to have an exhibition of sick bags and I created a few extra ones for the show. There was 50 shades of spray and <laughs> rage against the cuisine. So it was like, <laughs> uh, and then uh, Qantas, who's one of the biggest air carriers in, in Australia, they came to the exhibition and were like, Hey, like we'd love to collaborate with you somehow using this project. So they ended up kind of teaming up with me and doing like a month campaign where they encouraged. It wasn't exactly the same because they actually said, look, we love this idea. We love the creativity, but we don't want anything about being sick. <laughs> of course. Corporations don't want to remind you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, that's kind of the whole idea. But anyway, it was good for me because it meant that, you know, I could continue to do my own personal version of the project and then just team up with them for a month where they, I think I did, ended up drawing like something like a destination of one of the sick bags and they kind of yeah it kind of had a good response but it was great that you know a big corporate brand would jump on this really silly little idea but it just took off and I think it just resonates with people because it's something that everyone experiences and 
they know the context and it's just a bit of fun. So yeah. That's a cool project. I like how it sort of took off organically and then other people got involved. And I also love the puke pun. It's just good humor <laughs> right there. <laughs> Thank you. This is also a really good example of how creative people can really utilize Instagram. And, you know, you said you got a big following from it. And I guess my question would be, do you feel like you get a lot of business through Instagram? Is that a channel where you feel like you're succeeding and benefiting and getting new jobs or new work? Yeah, definitely. I think that probably in the last three years, it's been like a big driver of, of new work for me, or at least it may be not directly, you know, I'm not like getting direct messages. Hey, can we do this? But you know, people maybe aren't directors or people will follow my work for an extended period of time. And then a job will come along like, Oh, this would be perfect for Gemma. So I think it's just like that idea of like seeing in the same way that branding works is like, you see something Mm -hmm. enough that it's in your mind, you know? <laughs> and I think that, you know, consistently sharing like not only finished pieces, but for me, I like the idea that you can share something that's just maybe an idea or something that's like fleeting or maybe I'll try this experimental, you know, especially with calligraphy or different brush lettering techniques. You can just put something out there and it might not be a fully formed idea, but someone else creative or someone who's got a project might be, oh, this would be perfect for that. So I think there's lots of opportunities, not just in Instagram, but lots of, you know, online mediums that is really great for creatives. And it's definitely been a big one for me. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I feel like I'm at a point now where it's got its pros and its cons because you kind of define what you do and people follow you for a certain reason. And then, you know, that can sometimes I think maybe just in my head limit like a certain level of experimentation or where you want to go. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. Right. They have like an expectation of what kind of work they expect. And as an artist and a creative, you always want to continue evolving and like pushing forward with what you're doing. And sometimes you get stuck in like a habit or a rut because you're known for that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's almost inevitable because, you know, to be able to ask be asked to do something creative. People want to see that you've done it before. And then you, you know, you kind of have to repeat lots of things and you have to repeat things to get better at them. So I think it's like finding a balance between keeping your kind of base level of these, these are some things I do. And then every now and then throwing in one new thing and you can kind of continue to expand your like set of tools that you work with or ideas. When you post a new idea or something kind of experimental, a new direction that you're going in, do you Mm. find that your existing audience responds with fewer likes like do you feel that metric giving you a direct correlation do people want your greatest hits you know you start to know what people like for example you know if I posted an image that was just a direct like screen grab of something I've been working on digitally it would get fewer likes than if it was on the desk with a hand and with some evidence of real you know and a hundred percent people always seemed to like especially in my feet you know if if it was like a mural or if there was a sense of scale and you know versus just the artwork itself and you know I I can understand that I think it's really interesting in terms of of course people want to see something that's real that has context because everything is so digital nowadays so to see that something's hand-painted or that something has a sense of human scale is more appealing look I mean I know I draw I'm drawn to it but then other days I'll like post the drawing I'm like this is cool this is interesting not many likes and then post a picture of my house plants and it goes through the roof I'm like come on guys (laughs) (laughs) so typography 
is and hand lettering is one of your primary focuses and your first loves, right? And language goes hand in hand with typography. Can you talk to us about your deep love of both typography, lettering and and words? Sure. I think that without really noticing it until I started doing typography and reflecting on what was it maybe that drew me in so much, but my family is definitely like a word family, like my mum's side, like there would always be like little jokes and puns and wordplay and those sorts of things. I was never like a huge reader. Like I never read huge big fiction novels, which people are always like, what? But you love typography and words. It seems like, you know, the opposite. But I like the idea of like cultural references and language and the way that that evolves over time and the way that it can speak to a certain place or a memory I liked that kind of cultural side of things and the human side of it. And I think that was a big thing when I first got interested in typography because, you know, you'd start to realize how much it's embedded in like our daily lives in all aspects of anything from reading a newspaper to, you know, text messages, but then as something that someone wrote on a fridge that they're throwing out on the street, they're like free. And so there was just all these forms of like design and undesigned communication that was I suddenly realized this isn't going anywhere. You know, the alphabet's been around for a long time. Language is this construct that we've invented and we use and it's amazing. And so I think that that side of it will always interest me aside from just the creative side of making it as an area to like research and, and listen to. I love that. And so I think that's what will probably keep me interested, whether it ends up being in research or in creating stuff. But yeah, I just really love that reference between visual communication and humans and culture. Yeah. And words can have totally different meanings in different contexts. And when you're approaching a new project and you're given, you know, a word or you think Mm. of a phrase or, or a saying or something, do you have like a feeling and does that come out in the way that the word ends up looking? I think it's a combination. If I'm given the text already that's existing, it'll be a matter of looking at not only what it means, but, you know, how many letters does this have? How could it sit? It's just like simultaneously working out the visuals and the meaning behind it. And I think that sometimes it's not like a direct, literal, you know, if you're writing flower, you don't necessarily have to draw flowers, but, you know, how can you incorporate like energy or movement or positivity or these kind of like really subtle underlying things can be embedded in the way that you create the letters or combine them with illustration. And I think that interplay between the meaning and the tools that you have at your disposal to manipulate it, to represent or change that meaning accordingly is very exciting. Have you ever had a situation where you had a difficult time with a word or a group of words where you were just like, oh, I just can't convey what I I want (laughs) to say? Or did it just not turn out the way you wanted it to? I think it's actually the hardest thing is coming up with um, words initially, (laughs) because so much of the commercial work that I do, they're given to me. So it's really like it's skipping a whole conceptual phase initially. So like when I did that solo show that I was talking about, I was thinking, okay, well, I need like a set of short phrases that I want to use that not only are linked conceptually, but then can also be linked visually or have the right length to fit in this space or look good. So it's just a constant back and forth. And I think that when I've got to think of the words myself, you know, as soon as you rule out song lyrics, poems, inspirational quotes, um, 
somebody else's words and you're left to write something yourself, which is where like, I always want to be heading with my own personal work to create something that's closer to art. Then I'm like, okay, well maybe I need to spend more time writing or thinking about what I want to be saying. Is there a process that you do? Do you have like a journal and you just, you know, word vomit um, (laughs) all over? (laughs) Basically I have two, so two techniques. One is that I have like an ongoing notes system that's synced on my digital devices. So it's just literally a long list. And sometimes it might be just two words, like ultraviolet. And I don't necessarily know why I like it, but I like it. (laughs) And so they will all go in the list. And then I will kind of look back on it and select a few different ones and then often just write things out as well. Okay, words and permanence. So words are fleeting for the most part. We read them, you know, we digest them, they go away. But have you ever considered getting a word or a phrase tattooed on you? Have you ever done (laughs) word tattoos for other people? Because that's a little more permanent. (laughs) Yes, I've never actually designed a tattoo. Although I do have a funny story, which maybe if we have time, I'll tell you. We do. Let's hear it. (laughs) So lots of people had asked me to design tattoos for them. And I always kind of said no, because I'm like, I don't know if I want that responsibility. I feel like tattooing is a whole world in itself. And there's people who are amazing at it. So I'll leave them to do it. But there was this one guy in a band who I had been doing some design work for them separately. And he was like, hey, can you design a tattoo for me? I'm like, oh, I don't know. He's like, can you just do a couple of sketches? And so I did a few sketches. I don't think he's going to listen to this all this tell a story. Um, and <laughs> I'm just trying to remember what it was a Beatles lyric. Uh, oh, it was Here Comes the Sun. And so I did a few sketches and I'm like, look, I don't know. I think it's a bit too feminine. I just, the style, I wasn't convinced. Like I, I kind of strongly said that, you know, maybe he should think about it or do something else. Or I'm like, you should just have a unicorn jumping out of a fire. You know, if you're going to get a tattoo. Anyway, so he was like, okay, cool. I'll leave it. Maybe we'll come back to it in like a few months or so. So we kind of left it, didn't hear from him. The following summer, he like kind of rings me up. He's like, Hey, Gemma, we're going to a party and we're going to go um, swimming up in the Northern beaches. Do you want to come? I was like, sure. And so I kind of went with them and we're all about to jump off this ledge into this big water hole. And he takes off his shirt and then he like revealed to me that he'd gotten the tattoo <laughs> based on the sketch and was just like, look, like it was the surprise. I was like, Oh, <laughs> And I didn't, yeah, I didn't think it looked too good. But anyway, that's my only time. Where where did he get the tattoo? Like on his chest, on his kind of like, yeah, on his pectoral. Is that what it is? (laughs) And it was, it said, here comes the sun. Yeah. So it was like, I mean, I kind of like, I like that here comes the sun, but I just didn't like it. It didn't, I didn't like it as a tattoo, but hey, it's his body. He can do what he wants. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess it's better that it wasn't a giant back piece. That's true. That's true. I read doing research on you that you're also an active public speaker. It seems like that's a big part of the work that you do. Do you enjoy the spoken word as much as the written word? I think I enjoy it as a way of kind of reflecting on my own work, thinking about the field, and then being able to kind of share my enthusiasm and passion for it with, you know, different audiences. And I think also being in Australia, where I love and I love living here and I want to stay here, but to be able to travel to different cities and kind of meet people and and talk is a great way to kind of have a balance between those two things. And I actually think that I'm, as I said before, I wasn't like a huge reader. I feel like I'm more of an audio visual person. So I love taking the information by listening. And I feel like sometimes I can communicate faster 
my ideas by talking. So a lot of the time when I do a public speaking event, I will like have loose ideas around what I'm going to say and then just, you know, improvise from there. That's quite a talent improvising. So I'm guessing that you are probably on the extroverted scale. I definitely would say I'm probably an extrovert. Although I do actually like to be a hermit and escape and be completely disconnected a lot of the time when I do work. I think it's too extreme, you know, in social or those kinds of contexts. Definitely extroverted, but then leave me alone. I need to create some new stuff. (laughs) Get get out of my space. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you seem to be left-brained and right-brained, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about the business of design because you do work for yourself. Did that seem to come fairly easily for you? I know you work with an agency, but uh, how how does that all work? To be honest, I think that I've only gotten better at it through, you know, having to do it for four years. Then, you know, just the talking to clients, negotiating, you know, doing your tax, all those business things that when I worked for the big design companies, you know, you never even had to really think about it It was all done Mm -hmm. for you. So it's definitely something that I probably wasn't very good at to start off with. Even just, you know, I think as a creative person, Things like deadlines, you just, they're the worst. And even now, you know, the deadline is the thing that really drives the process. And I think I've only gotten better at, you know, things like time management and accepting when something's done because it has to be done, taking creative criticism, all those kinds of things. I think I've managed to compartmentalize the commercial work. I think of it more as a job. And so I think, okay, well, yes, I'm being creative and yes, I'm putting myself into this, but part of it, I have to, you know, cut off and be like, okay, well, you know, they need it by Mm -hmm. this time. So I can't do that. And, you know, just kind of finding a middle ground. Are you a procrastinator or are you, you know, a revisionist? You just continue revising and you can't ever call something done. Maybe a little bit of both. Like when I think of procrastinating, I definitely put things off, but usually because I've got multiple projects, the good thing is I can procrastinate by doing another project. So it's not like I'm sitting there watching Netflix. It's like um, a productive procrastination. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's more of a, um, a delay out of, probably out of fear, especially if it's something new, you know, if it's something that I've done before and it's, they've taken something from my folio and we want this, I can really quickly just get into it and churn it out. But I think it's like when I know that I want to do something new, there's that hesitation at the beginning where I don't really know it at the time, but I think it's because I'm scared that it's not going to be good. And so it kind of takes a while to come out and the closer the deadline is, the faster it forces that idea to come out. (laughs) So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your life at home. You mentioned a boyfriend that you moved to Sydney with. You mentioned he was a then boyfriend, so he's not in the picture anymore, but... But what is your your home life like? So my home life currently is I live in a big three-story terrace house, which I've actually been in for about four years, so since the beginning of my freelance career. And it's kind of like come and go with different people living in it. So at the moment, I have two girls living here who are also my friends, and I have two spaces. So I have a studio space, an attic, and another room. And then at the end of the year, my now boyfriend is going to be moving in. We're going to take over the house and turn it into a big creative place because he's a writer. So, yeah, it'll be great. Oh, you fell in love with a writer. That sounds like a surprise. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That sounds wonderful, actually. I love words, too. And so that sounds like a life filled with words. And not only that, but a really articulate and poetic use of words. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's kind of nice to have a 
creative discipline that's, you know, similar, but also very, very different in that you can talk about, you know, I'm doing this or what do you think about this, but they're not really overlapping, like in terms of the final output or, you know, what you're creating. Mm -hmm. There can be synergy without direct competition. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So what do you do, you know, if if you're churning output all the time, creative Mm -hmm. output, how, how do you take care of yourself to make sure you can operate at peak levels or that you can always have a reservoir of creativity to pull from? Well, I like to run. I kind of, I used to run in school doing like cross country and stuff, but now I definitely use it as like a, you know, stress relief kind of like, you know, get those endorphins released kind of thing. I try and run like three times a week. I also ride a bike. I love riding my bike. So around Sydney, it's like a great way to get around and also something that I do to relax. I've also recently started cooking a lot more. I love cooking, but I never used to do it because it was always like, I'm so busy, this deadline's more important or, you know, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But I've started doing it a lot more often and come to enjoy it very much. So I think it's a constant, you know, trying to find ways to make sure that there's life, work-life balance because I definitely never used to have work-life balance. It was like work was the thing. And I think I've only in the last couple of years realized you've got to have a life that's, you know, balanced. And when you die, you're not going to remember sitting at your computer, like changing that PSD. You're going to remember like hanging out with your friends and, you <laughs> yeah. know, having good times. <laughs> yeah. When you're young, it seems easier to push like that. Um, but then you sort of reach a point where pushing all the time doesn't seem like that should be all there is. And you can start to feel like, well, if I keep doing this, I'm going to head towards burnout and Totally. I'm to stave that off somehow. So that's when work-life balance starts to really become important. I love to hear that you're cooking. That sounds like something that would be really fun to do with your writer boyfriend. I used to find it annoying just to cook yourself. Yeah. But now I've like gotten over that and I don't think he knew I could cook. He actually posted a picture of me painting a mural just a few days ago and was like, but can she cook? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Yeah. And I think, you know, it's creative as well. Like I'm not the most amazing chef, but I think, you know, it's a similar process. Like once you've got your base ingredients, you can kind of mix it up a bit. And yeah, once you have something creative that is a passion and then it becomes work, it's nice to have something else that is just completely free from anything other than just enjoyment. And it's a generous activity. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of things that are creative outlets for you, are you working on any personal projects right now, similar to the spew bags that you're really excited about? I've got a couple, I've got two like personal projects that are in a similar vein to the spew bag in the sense that they're fun and kind of involve puns and are a bit silly, but they're they're secretly in the works. I'm I'm not ready to share them yet. Hopefully in the next year, they'll emerge. And then (laughs) to wait a year. I know. (laughs) And then I also am working towards ultimately like another kind of installation style exhibition. And then just in between, you know, between now and the end of the year, I've got lots of travel coming up. So I've got the AIGA conference in Las Vegas and then Adobe Max in San Diego, which are happening October, November a bit of Europe in between. So lots of kind of on the road time. So there'll hopefully be exciting things coming out of those trips as well. Great. Yeah. I'm excited about Adobe Max because uh, I'm, I live here in San Diego, so hopefully we'll get to meet up. Yeah. <laughs> at some point. That'd be great. <laughs> All right. Well, Amy and I would like to take the next couple minutes to just play a fun word association game with you. If you are down. Sure. So this is just a silly and fun word association game. Just 
like a traditional word association game. We will say a word and you say the first word that comes into your mind. Don't even think about it. Just you got to come out with it. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Amy, you want to start? Okay. The first word is voluminous. Hair. (laughs) Necktie. Check. Crevice. Band. Common. Common, did you say? Mm-hmm. Lettuce? <laughs> Pustule. <laughs> I can't say that without laughing. Oh I'm so God. glad that wasn't my word. <laughs> Wait, did you say something? I was laughing too hard. I said doctor. Okay. Oh, okay. that's a good one. Okay. <laughs> Disaster. Tornado? Pineapple. Oh, summer. <laughs> Dustbuster. Clean. <laughs> Iceberg. Antarctica. Watermelon. Oh, also summer. <laughs> Sumptuous. Chocolate pudding. Oh my god, they're all food. I keep on saying food. Oh, you just saying food. <laughs> Ladle. Oh, milk. <laughs> Cumulative. Oh. Math? Did you say smarts? Math. Math, okay. Oh, math. Not you guys say math, I think. <laughs> Mathematics. Oh, like. you say <laughs> maths with an S? Yeah, we say it with an S. Oh, really? I never I knew know. that. It's so weird. There's so many like funny little Australian-American things like oh. that. Oh, they always pop up. <laughs> Celebrity. Oh, oh, God, Kim Kardashian. That's so annoying that that was the first thing I thought of. <laughs> You can't escape from the Kardashians no matter where in the world you live. <laughs> okay, and the last word, lobotomized. Oh my God, crazy? <laughs> That's what that is, right? Isn't that that thing where they put that thing in your brain and suck stuff out? I yes. think they drill a hole into your brain. It's yeah. terrible. That's horrible. <laughs> that was fun. That was fun, yeah. Thanks for playing. That was a very good list, you guys. I feel like I learned a lot. I learned that you like to eat. <laughs> I now have such a craving for chocolate pudding after I go get this pustule dealt with. <laughs> so gross. Okay, and in wrapping this up, you already talked about some projects that you have in, in the works. Is there anything else you want our listeners to know about? I think we've covered everything. You can follow anything else that I do, as I said before, on Instagram. And my handle is Mrs. Eves 101. And Twitter, it's Mrs. Eves without the 101. <laughs> okay. And we'll put those links on our show notes too. And do you have a website where they can look at some of your projects? Sure. If you go to jemobrien.com. Okay, well, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for calling us from the future. Yeah, yes. uh, <laughs> thanks for having me. We have learned a lot, and uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing you speak at one of the events coming up. Yeah. yeah, sounds good. All right, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Have a good night. <laughs> Bye, Bye, Gemma. <laughs> What a cutie pie. I think I want to be best friends with her. I I think I want to eat sumptuous chocolate pudding. I want to hang out with her and her artist boyfriend in their three-story terrace house and Uh. eat her cooking and have her design all my tattoos. 
I know. That was so much fun. I am a sucker for an Australian accent too. So I just loved listening to that. <laughs> I always think it's really interesting too when we have really young creatives. I mean, you know, I'm a fan of people who have had years in and bodies of works built up, but yes. Sometimes young creatives just have a, a youthful energy and an interesting story that is still fresh about how they got started and how they're getting started. Yeah, and we're finding this more and more with young creatives that they're getting noticed on Instagram or from their blog or something they put on Pinterest and they're developing entire careers out of it. So it's really fascinating to hear her story and how she had so many pivotal moments in her young career. And, and I'm, I'm excited to see how many more fun things she can cook up on Instagram. Yes, I read a statistic that 50-55% of B2B, let's say, buyers or decision makers are going to be millennials in the next couple of years. And so they're doing all their research via the internet. And so it's not just YouTube stars and it's the way people are doing business now. If you're not on the internet, you don't exist. But I think that her story is kind of exciting that she got her big break from her blog and then her Instagram account has really taken off and she just feels like a very modern example of the way creatives are structuring their careers. Well, I love that her big break started with a criticism of something from someone with a lot of experience and then he ended up apologizing <laughs> to her, which is really, really funny. But it just goes to show you that if you do things a certain way, just because there's newbies doing something a different way doesn't mean that they're wrong. So it's, it's about having an open mind about creativity. Also, what's next for the future of design? Yeah, what is next for the future of design, Jamie? I don't know, <laughs> but if somebody could design me an air conditioner right now because I'm sweating so bad, <laughs> I'm not wearing pants. <laughs> it's hot in here. <laughs> oh, oh. No, pantsless Jamie. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on the web at cleverpodcast.com. You should go there because that's where you can read our show notes and you can see images of Gemma because she's adorable, and her work, which is amazing. Plus, Jamie and I compiled our favorite spew bags, including such hits as Queasy Like Sunday Morning and Puke Skywalker. Barfing was never so glamorous. Oh, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter so you can be notified about new episodes. And follow us, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Clever Podcast. We love to hear from you and your feedback is always appreciated. So get yes. on there and chat with us. Yes, follow. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modal of Your Studio with music by L1011. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.